Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. You've heard the rumors before, perhaps in whispers, written between the lines of the textbooks. Conspiracies, paranormal events, all those things that disappear from the official explanations. Tune in and learn more of the stuff they don't want you to know in this video podcast from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. So last weekend, I checked out the new exhibit on Leonardo da Vinci at the High Museum in Atlanta. And I would definitely call the centerpiece of the exhibit this colossal horse reproduction. So you're basically in the middle of like midtown Atlanta, and then you're by this huge faux bronze renaissance horse. And when I was learning a little bit about it, it was originally commissioned by the Sforza family, which got me thinking about other famous Renaissance families. And we're talking about the Borgias, specifically Lucrezia Borgia. And it was funny, I changed my Facebook status to say that I knew more about Lucrezia Borgia than anyone, and I got so many comments on it, and a friend of mine brought up a Three Stooges sketch where Mo accuses Curly of being a Lucrezia Borgia by trying to poison them. And that's the legend, that she was this incestuous, poisoning femme fatale, or just a victim and a pawn of her brothers. A pawn of her her family. So we're going to try to figure out what really happened with her. And to do that, we're going to start out talking a little bit about the Borgia family. They're originally from Spain, but they were based in Italy. And it's a pretty amazing family. They produced two popes, the model for the Machiavellian prince, and a saint. But don't worry, we're not going to focus on the saintly (laughs) side of the family. The down and dirty Quite the contrary. Um, And their primary puppet, or perhaps... Their primary player was Lucrezia, who was the illegitimate daughter of um, an unlikely character, as we'll find out in a minute. But the family kind of got set up by a great uncle, Alfonso de Borgia, who was Pope Calixtus III. And he set up his family through nepotism in the church and in politics, including his young nephew, Rodrigo Borgia, who becomes a cardinal. And Rodrigo Borgia, who later became Pope Alexander VI, had a mistress, Venoza de Catane. And it wasn't that uncommon for religious men of the time to have mistresses, as surprising as that may be to us today. Especially religious men of that stature. A a cardinal is a pretty important position. Right, that's very high up there. But they had three kids together. He had at least six kids and possibly some more. We're not entirely sure. And one of those three was Lucrezia, who was born April 18th, 1480 in Rome. The other two were Cesare and Juan. And Juan ends up in the Tiber at some point, probably killed by Cesare. (laughs) The Borgias as a family were known for being very attractive, very intelligent, and very strong-willed. They were also well-educated. Lucrezia was educated by a woman named Adriana Orsini, who was related to them. And traditionally, most well-off young women of the time were educated in convents. But a lot of these convents weren't the 
morally upstanding kind of places you would think a convent would be. Again, kind of on par with being a cardinal or yeah, the pope church as, was a bit yeah. corrupt at the time, <laughs> and a lot of religious education was more about the forms of religion rather than the ethics. So you would learn how to appear to be a holy person, but no one told you not to have orgies in the Vatican, which <laughs> will come up a little bit later. So she was trained in languages, music, drawing, and embroidery. And by the age of 11, she was engaged twice to Spanish nobles, actually at the same time. So oh, go covering her bets. Got to have a backup. <laughs> um, to Don Cherubino, Wanda Santel, and Don Gasparo. And it's rumored she lost her virginity at age 10 to Don Cherubino. Uh, but in 1492, Daddy becomes Pope, so little Lucrezia can do better than her Spanish dons, and uh, the Borgia family wants to find an alliance that can do some work for him. And so they decide on Giovanni Sforza, and this is a you know a powerful alliance with a Milanese family. So he was in. These are the these are the guys who are commissioning the horse from yes. Leonardo da Vinci eventually. The giant horse people, the <laughs> Sforzas, remember. He was an illegitimate prince. And I think according to the wedding contract, she was supposed to remain in Rome for a year after the ceremony, um, until which time the marriage was not to be consummated. But this wedding is something else. So once again, her father is Pope by now. He's actually moved on to a new mistress, um, aside from her mother. Julia Farnese? Yeah, and... <laughs> they have this big wedding at the Vatican, which just seems so <laughs> terribly inappropriate. The Pope's daughter getting married at the Vatican. Um, but it's a really big deal. 500 ladies attending the bride and uh, the new mistress involved. And it's, it's a little screwy. Yeah. <laughs> so they're married for a few years and she lives with her husband in Pizarro. And then eventually they come back to Rome but Lucrezia, things are rupturing by that point. The Borgias have decided that Giovanni doesn't have all the power that they need. He's no longer that beneficial of a political alliance. And yeah. they're thinking she could do better. Yeah, the, the Pope has switched his alliance, so he's supporting Naples. So he he doesn't want to be aligned with the Swartz family anymore. No. And it wasn't a happy marriage either. So Lucrezia maybe wouldn't have been so sad to have it ruptured for her. So one of two things may have happened here. One, the Pope may have actually ordered Giovanni's execution, and Lucrezia warned her husband. He got out of Dodge, Dodge being Rome in this case, (laughs) and um, then that kind of gives ground for an eventual annulment. Or... She might have just made the entire thing up to get rid of him. like tired of her boring husband. Well, and he knew that he was no longer the person that they'd hoped him to be, and so she tells him, you know, my father wants you murdered. He's very powerful, and and he leaves. Yeah, but regardless, Giovanni's out of Rome, and this opens up an avenue for a forced annulment, and the annulment is so embarrassing for Giovanni. They force him to sign it, and it says that he's impotent, and therefore the marriage was never consummated, which is dubious at best. Yeah, because uh, Lucretia may have been pregnant <laughs> Although perhaps not from him. Yeah. We won't find out about that until a little bit later. But Giovanni is so ticked off about how he's been forced to do this that he accuses her of incest with her father and brother. And that's where that long historical rumor starts. Linger with her reputation for quite some time. Uh, But she's 
free to marry again. And the Borgias, of course, want an equally powerful political alliance as her first was. So they marry her off right away. And they marry her off to Alfonso of Aragon, who was 17. He was the Duke of Baselli, an important part of Naples. And it seemed to be a love match. They were both, you know, young and in love and handsome, and things were working out well. But, of course, if you're a Borgia son-in-law, things can't last too long. And uh, soon enough, the Pope has realigned his allegiances again, and Alfonso is no longer in favor. And that's where things get very tragic. The Pope tells them they should come to Rome to wait for the birth of their baby, um, Rodrigo Borgia de Aragon. And Alfonso gets there and realizes this is not a good place for him to be. So he leaves and eventually is convinced to come back by Lucrezia. And he is attacked and almost killed in St. Peter's Square in July 1500 by a mysterious band of men. And as he's recovering from that and Lucrezia is nursing him, he's strangled, likely by Cesare, her brother, or perhaps a servant. So she's heartbroken. Her family has murdered her husband, and she's sent off because they're tired of watching her grieve. Well, and that may have been a case, too, of Cesare going against Pope Alexander's wishes, because the Pope had sent a guard because he knew what might happen, and Cesare got around him. But Lucretia was heartbroken, and she heads to Nepi and starts signing her letters, the most unhappy princess of Salerno. So our femme fatale here is clearly a little devastated by what's happened. Yeah, well, in, around the same time, we have one of the weirdest events in Lucretia's life. This toddler appears on the scene, three-year-old child who's popularly known as the Roman infant, but who's named Giovanni. Don't you like that? Very descriptive name, right? I do. <laughs> um, and two papal bulls are released regarding this kid. So I'd say one would be a lot for most people, but two. <laughs> and the first one calls him the illegitimate son of Cesare, uh, Lucrezia's brother. The second calls him the illegitimate son of Alexander, the Pope, neither of whom should be having kids anyways. Obviously, Alexander is the Pope. Cesare, he... It's probably still a cardinal when this mysterious infant is fathered. So those are both pretty sketchy options. Well, and to issue papal bulls saying things like, the Pope has had this child is even stranger. But a lot of people thought it might have been Lucrezia's child. And there's also a rumor that it was her child by this messenger was later murdered. Yeah, Pedro Calderon, and he's found in the Tiber along with a lot of Borgia enemies. So, but this kid kind of follows Lucrezia around through her life, you know, living with different relatives, but making appearances, it, they seem to have an important bond between them. Even though she refers to him as her nephew for most of it, a lot of historians think it was actually her child, which means, again, she would have been very pregnant when she was getting divorced for non-consummation <laughs> of her marriage. So thanks, Borges. She gets married again, her third and last marriage, and that's to Alfonso d'Este, the Duke of Ferrara. And they're married in 1501. It's arranged by Cesare, and Alfonso is not excited about marrying Borgia. Obviously. I mean, you've seen what, what's happened to her previous two husbands. Like, why would you want to get involved? family. They're clearly morally corrupt and, in general, <laughs> terrible people. Her future sister-in-law, Isabel, freaks out and wants nothing to do with this marriage and does everything she can to stop it. 
But Lucretia does her best to win over the family, and this is my favorite detail about this. Uh, her future father-in-law collects nuns, preferably those who have displayed the stigmata. So, well, of course. <laughs> yeah, why, why would you want any other kind? So Lucretia helps him add to his collection by sending him a few nuns, and I just, I have to wonder, since she's a member of the Borgia family, how did these poor nuns get their stigmatas? I'd really probably rather not. (laughs) The Este family was extremely important and powerful, and the Borgias were desperate to be part of it. And they also really wanted to fix Lucretia's image, because at this point, people were calling her terrible things. I think one of her nicknames was the worst whore in all of Rome. Apologies for the language. That's what it was. (laughs) Although her new husband wasn't that fantastic either. He was warlike and uncouth, and really liked the company of prostitutes. But his first wife had died in childbirth, and he was in need of someone else to give him an heir. But it actually ends up being a pretty good match, surprisingly. They sort of rule as um, partners over Ferrara. She helps bring a lot of art and culture to her court, and she's generally regarded as a, as a success and manages to survive, most impressively, survive the fall of her family. And when the Borgias fall, they go down hard. And it, it starts when Alexander dies in 1503, maybe from poisoning, maybe from the plague. And the priests at St. Peter's, this is how bad things are, the, the priests refused to accept his body initially, the Pope. And um, Cesare, without the support of his father and all that, strength, he goes down pretty fast and is exiled to Spain, dies shortly afterwards uh, in a siege. So you would think Lucretia would be influenced by this fall too, but she set herself up so respectfully by this point that she's pretty much immune to it. it. It even improves her, oddly enough. She becomes a lot less political and a lot more religious. She even pawns her jewels to help the poor. She's not so interested anymore in the intrigues of the Borgia family. And she's had her own private tragedies. During this marriage, she's had several miscarriages and very difficult pregnancies, a few stillbirths, and was treated with the typically medieval medical procedures of the time. So people were bleeding her from the foot with her stillborn children, which sounds really could not bad. have been pleasant. They end up having six children, four live to adulthood. Um, little Isabella dies at birth, and so does Alessandro. But we don't want to make her out to be too pious because she had her fun during her marriage as well. She had several love affairs. One of whom was her brother-in-law. Francesco II Gonzaga, the Marquis of Mantua, her bisexual brother-in-law who was married to the aforementioned Isabella d'Este, who hated her. And they ended up breaking off their affair, possibly because of syphilis, which he died of, and possibly because the messenger between them was stabbed 22 times and killed. It's really, the Borgias are dangerous, <laughs> dangerous people to be around. Um, one of her other lovers, perhaps just, uh, this, this affair might have just been conducted in courtly love letters, but regardless, it went on for 16 years, was with Pietro Bembo, who was a linguist and later a cardinal. Once again, we see how that goes. (laughs) Um, But he's most famous today because his name belongs to a font, which um, Katie and I checked. It's not (laughs) available in our office suite. Um, And he's also a character in Castiglione's The Book of the Courtier. But uh, these letters exchanged with Lucretia made it, survived through history, 
and came along with a lock of hair, believed to be Lucretius. And Lord Byron views this correspondence in the 1800s, and he's so taken by this correspondence, which he just thinks is absolutely beautiful, that he steals a strand of the hair. God, Byron. It's kind of of (laughs) creepy, isn't it? He steals a strand of the hair, and he shows it to Lee Hunt and Walter Savage Lander, who writes an epigram about the hair. It's more about the hair than it is about Lucrezia. You know, you have to read it. Okay. (laughs) It's called On Seeing a Hair of Lucrezia Borgia. Borgia, thou once wert almost too august and high for adoration. Now thou art dust. All that remains of thee, these plates enfold, calm hair, meandering with pellucid gold. Which is a much nicer thing written about her (laughs) than what Victor Hugo wrote in his preface to the play Lucrezia Borgia. This is a direct quote. Who actually is Lucrezia Borgia? Take the most hideous, the most repulsive, the most complete moral deformity. Place it where it fits best, in the heart of a woman whose physical beauty and royal grandeur will make the crime stand out all the more strikingly. Then add to all that moral deformity the purest feeling a woman can have, that of a mother. Inside our monster put a mother, and the mother will interest us and make us weep. And this creature that filled us with fear will inspire pity. That deformed soul will be almost beautiful in our eyes." So you can see the scathing judgment that history put the on Lucretia. Romantics became almost obsessed with Lucretia and of uh, an opera. Donizetti wrote an opera um, based on Victor Hugo's work. They just, they couldn't get enough of her, it seems. When it was one of those things, I keep saying history is not black and white. People wanted to make her either really good or really bad. So there were those people who said she was the incestuous poisoner who was evil embodied. And then the people who tried to say, no, no, she was actually very pious and go to the complete obvious extreme. She'd run away to the nunnery whenever she she could. Whereas we're going to say she was somewhere in the middle and had a lot of good qualities and a lot of bad ones. And she died complications of childbirth on June 24th, 1590, um, when baby Isabella was born, stillborn. And before, when she knew she was dying, she wrote to Pope Leo asking for his forgiveness for all of her sins. And as for her other children, Giovanni went to the French court, and he never succeeded in making his fortune like they'd hope. He died in Genoa in 1547. Ercole succeeded his father as the Duke of Ferrara. Ippolito became a cardinal, and when I think of Ippolito, I think of the restaurant, so that's all I could think of when I was looking (laughs) at this. Leonora became a nun, and Francesco was Marchese de Massa Lombarda. And the Borgias actually just sort of slip away not too long after this. They're really only prominent in the 1400s and the 1500s. And while we think of the Medici family and even the Swartzes as having descendants who made it into all sorts of European courts or or had had influential family members down the line, the Borgias, they're pretty much gone. Um, one interesting descendant, though, uh, Brooke Shields, she's a, she's a descendant of Lucretia's. Well, there's a Hollywood trivia tidbit I bet you didn't know, because I certainly didn't. So if you'd like to learn more about how the papacy works, as well as the Italian Renaissance, go check out our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com and check out the blog while you're there. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.